Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello, and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we present a creative reading and conversation with Roy Meeky and Mike Barnholden. My name is Rebecca Jelaine, and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. This reading and conversation was recorded during a Tea House event called Producing Flow in October 2019. Roy Miki is a writer and editor who grew up in Winnipeg and now lives in Vancouver. He is the author of six books of poems, one of which, Surrender, has received the Governor General's Award for Poetry. Roy received the Order of Canada in 2006 and the Order of British Columbia in 2009. Mike Barnholden has worked as an editor for many years and written 10 books of poetry and several nonfiction titles. He has also worked in construction, agriculture, and forestry as a childcare worker and disability advocate. In this conversation, Roy Miki and Mike Barnholden discuss writing and editing flow, a collection of Roy Miki's older and previously unpublished poetry released in 2019. Mike is Roy's editor and friend, and together they read poetry from Flow and poems Mike wrote in response to Roy's work. They also talk about the numerous collages that appear in the collection, which Roy created using photographs. These collages, Mike says, become poems in themselves. Roy and Mike's sense of humor and camaraderie come through in between the poems they read. Key pieces in the collection center around Roy's Japanese-Canadian family and his birth in an internment camp in St. Agathe, Manitoba. In this beautiful conversation, Roy talks about how the internment shaped both his life and his life's work. Thank you very much. Uh, this is a pleasure and an honor to have this, uh, to share this space with my, my old friend and, um, and good old editor as well. We, we worked on the book for two years, meeting pretty regu regularly for a series of interviews which became a part of uh, 
the text of the, of the afterword. Oh, we just, uh, I thought I'd just read this one poem that I printed out just to start things. I won't dwell on it. It's a poem that begins the book, uh, Cloudy and Clear. And Cloudy and Clear has a series of collages that play with the notion of clouds and cloud formation. And all of these images are from <coughs> North Falls Creek in Vancouver, where I live. So it's really my neighborhood. And the poem is called Seawall Ambit. Ambling is an art, a function of cloud talk, unfurling its tableau. Each step notes its finite aura of intoned synchronic oracles, as if we were to come upon a placid lake composed in faint echoes against what we heard as a cloud ducked behind the line. We belong to the amble, seek rest on the pivot, slide across the seawall with little regard for snap-shooting tourists leaning against the railing, their cell phones on alert for buzz of media sent along outreaching rings of a bevy of crows circling overhead. One overheard another say, bellow below the turn. You wouldn't, know, you wouldn't know ambles even in their occurrence. The haptic stance works best in the absence of furlongs of energy when to miss the event says over again and again. But what about the amble of least resistance? The amble that calls to its opposition, hey, what about I'll be okay if I breathe deeply and in step of soft shoes beneath the radar? Don't count on your assumptions to keep you afloat on ingenuity and the deaf move. Primacy resides in the gentle waft of spirals, trailing their belongings and subduing none. The abbreviated interlude spokes in a wheel, turns around under the cumulus quotient right here, where dog walkers follow the rhythm of pause. That's a poem in which uh, I set forward, I hope, a number of methodological points about my own composition process. And it has to do a lot with attention, attention to detail, attention to the flow and interplay of, of, of our consciousness with things. And a lot of these poems have to do with my walks along the seawall in Vancouver, North Falls Street. They, I daily walk that area where we live right now and uh, take snapshots. And a lot of lines of these poems came to my mind as I was walking. I don't think I'll leave it there for a second. Okay. Uh, I'll just pick up then uh, a few remarks about editing poetry. One of my favorite things, but not everybody likes to be edited. <laughs> <laughs> I found out early on when you you know you'd edit a whole manuscript and give it back to the poet, and, and they'd say, uh, "No, I won't be making any changes." <laughs> most most uh, poets that I've met are very much welcome that kind of close reading. But the issue has become in the publishing world, as publishing change goes through changes due to the, basically the marketplace, the changing of the market, the global marketplace, editing is one of those things that you can actually have a book without editing. And you'll see those books every once in a while. And to a fairly well-informed reader, it's, it's pretty obvious when a book hasn't been edited. Now, there are two types of editing I have to be clear about. One is substantive editing, where you're dealing with the ideas and 
the content. The other one is copy editing, where you're dealing with grammar and spelling and that type of thing. And I'll, I'll, touch, I'll come back to that in a minute, but what I want to talk about is basically, and in particular, this book, Flow. Now, and I'll, I'll tell a bit of a story about that. I used to work for Talon Books. I started there in 1988, last century. Seems like a century ago, but... And I worked there for about five years. And it was, for me, it was the first time I had worked in publishing. That was my first job in publishing. And I worked with my old friend Carl Siegler, the then publisher of Talon Books, who I had lived on a commune with in the early 70s. Hey, truth in advertising. <laughs> we lived on a commune in Surrey, British Columbia, and most of us were attending Simon Fraser at that point. But working with Carl, I remember we had this office down on Cordova Street that was above a foundry. So it was hot and dusty, except when they closed down the foundry every once in a while, they would close it down to clean. And then it was cold and dusty. <laughs> but I remember wor working there, and it would have been in probably hmm, 1990. And one of the things that Carl told me I had to do if I was going to work there was I had to read every book that they published. And one of those books was edited by Roy Meeky. And it was the letters of Muriel Kitagawa's Letters to Wes. Uh, a wonderful book. And I thought, oh, wow, that's incredible. And I, I had met Roy at various literary events. One I remember was Roy was a an early adapter of taping readings. So I remember you taped uh, oh. a Helen Adams reading up at SFU. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And there was about, oh, three or four people there. You and I happened to be two of them. So we Robin go back. Robin Blazer was another one. Robin Blazer was there. Um, Helen Adam was there. And Nancy and I were there. So that's six. How many of you know Helen Adam? San Francisco. Look her up uh, sometimes. She's the kookiest boy in the world. She yeah. works in, she works with Ryan, a traditional traditional leader, but turns it up completely inside out. She's a hilarious woman. Part part of the San Francisco Renaissance. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. She was actually Duncan, in Vancouver. But working it from a totally different position. Anyway, so I'm sitting at my desk at Talon Books. It's uh, hot and dusty and one of the things in publishing one of the things that I learned happens in publishing is the least experienced person is assigned the manuscript pile to go through the manuscripts and read them and have the first look at it, it makes no sense whatsoever but that's the way publishing worked at that time I suspect it doesn't even work that well nowadays a lot of manuscripts don't even get read. They're basically rejected out of hand. But Roy had submitted a book, his first book, to Talon. I thought we should publish it, but it ended up being published in Winnipeg, which is appropriate for Roy. And uh, But I remember reading the book and very much liking Roy's work. And through, not through so much through that, but other books that we worked on over the time that I was at Talon, there was the um, book with Sandra Kobayashi, 
Justice in our time. Justice in our time. There was a, an equally impressive book to this, uh, George Bowering's A Record of Writing, which I, I still marvel at the fact that Roy was able to do the vast research that that entailed. So we got to know each other, and we later, after I'd left Talon, one of the projects that we worked on, and this kind of ties back into the story that we're, uh, the narrative that we're going through here is the Pacific Windows by Roy, Roy Kayuka. And I, I'd forgotten that one of the launches for that book was right here at the university. I didn't make it out for that. I did the production work on that. But what I want to say about working with Roy on that book, it was really formative for me because what I saw Roy doing was editing Roy Kiyoka's work at the level of the line, at the level of the word. And so we went through that book time and time again. And it was a, let's, let's say, challenging book because Roy's practice meant that every time he <clears throat> read it, looked at it, thought about it, he changed it. And it was really difficult to keep up with those changes. So you had to be looking for hints in the manuscript itself, which, which iteration of the manuscript it was. To make it complicated, Roy had to die yes. during the process of this, of this book. We were working on it, and we were halfway through yeah, collecting the material, and he died. And literally, it was the first book that he, it was the first time that he'd used a computer. I'm not saying that the computer killed him, but he did die working on the manuscript at, no. at the computer. No? Is that, no. That's a folk le legend? Okay. Yeah. But he was at the computer? That's what I heard. Yeah, yeah but the computer didn't kill him. Well, I, <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> well, he, but he re it turned out that he really liked the computer because it was much easier to make changes. <laughs> anyway, what I'm getting at here is that I believe that a lot of the um, skill that I'm able to bring to editing poetry was a result of that experience working with Roy on Roy Kiyoka's book. Now, another interesting, and I like circumstances. Uh, the first person I met in the literary community when I came to Vancouver was this little Japanese guy. We were out in front of uh, Warren Tallman's house at a party, and you won't believe it, but we were smoking weed. <laughs> or Kyoka smoking weed. Anyway, and he, he said, where are you from? And I said, Moose Jaw. And he said, hey, I was, I'm from Moose Jaw too. So we're both Treaty 4 guys. But um, learning the level of care and uh, focus that Roy applied to Roy Kyoka's work has been a kind of standard that I've tried to live up to for myself. And one of the things about this book, so I'll just tell the basic, the origin story of this. At a certain point, Talon Books had no poetry editor. I believe Gary Thomas Morse left his job there. So Jeff Dirksen, Steve Collis, and myself independently phoned up Kevin and volunteered to help him out with the editorial tasks, the poetry editorial tasks. And he said, okay, let's form an editorial board. So we were on that board, Sachiko Mirakami, Pinder Dulai, uh, Katrina Strang, and 
Jordan Abel eventually came on the collective, editorial collective we like to call ourselves, after most of us came out of the Cooley School of Writing. You recognize some of the names from there. But we had <coughs> done, and Jeff had seen Fred Waugh's book through the, through the press. I, I guess that's the kind of old way that we used to talk about it, seeing a book through the press. And also the Phyllis Webb book. And these were hardcover, beautiful books that took a lot of effort. Now, we, we were having a meeting and we are discussing, okay, well, what do we do next? How do, how do we uh, come up with the next project here? And I, I'd been thinking about this and I, I had decided that I would propose this. And I thought, we should do a book, a collected poetry of Roy Meeky. I was thinking to myself, should be fairly easy. They're all, you know, the books are all published. There's not a lot of ephemeral work out there. We can do this, you know, we can just rip this off really quickly. So the poetry board was really excited about the idea. Great idea. Let's let's go forward with it. Okay, I'll go and talk to Roy about it. So I approached Roy. We went to one of our favorite coffee places and asked him about it. And of course, Roy was already about 10 steps ahead of me. He had a title. <laughs> but the biggest surprise to me was he was working on a new book, Cloudy and Clear. I don't know that you had the title quite at that point because we, no, we no. talked about the title. And, and he said, well, I've got about 15 poems. And so, okay, well, that's great. We can append that to the end. And that's a fairly common practice. But it wasn't long before the 15 poems turned into about 75 pages. So we had a whole complete book. And so as we're editing the collected, we're also editing a new book, which requires a different kind of attention and a different kind of thought. And I'm just going to read a bit. There's a really interesting, I wouldn't call it an anomaly, but it's it's something I didn't notice until just recently, and I don't know what that says about my editorial skills. But the first poem in the book, the title is Preface. So the book itself, the first book itself is Saving Face, and that's dedicated to Roy's wife, Slavia. A preface. There are nine sections, and it looks very much like prose, but it actually predicts a lot of what Roy is going to do with his life. So section one, an old photo, my pregnant mother with her childhood friend on a wide and empty street, my two brothers and sisters as small children, branded enemy alien. They have just been shipped to St. Agath, a small French-Canadian town 25 miles outside of Winnipeg, thousands of miles from the rolling hills of the Fraser Valley in BC. From the home in Haney with its orchards, garden, and creek out back, the traces of silence hover around her young figure, born at the mouth of the Skeena River, finding herself in this alien sugar beet farm. So Roy was born in internment, 1942, St. Agath. And that's the first poem in the book. And then we turn to the last poem in the book, the and this was, I think, the last poem that was written for the book. Mm-hmm. It's always been the final poem. And it's ten sections, but there's a major difference. Five of those ten sections of 
and the title is Enter Here, five of those 10 sections are collages. But the collages are in themselves poems. And I, I think what the initial poem that Roy read gives you some clues as to how to read the collages. There's one poem in here that speaks back to the one that I just read from the beginning, number five. The last time he shook hands with that memory, I was in a bind, the kind made popular in the passing assumption of the time. One could say insolvent and not be totally wrong. No, that he minded the shutter, not that he minded the shutter speed, did not allow for the Christmas of edge he linked with vivid recall. The morning that cloudy day hung in the branches of the ancestral oak tree. I sought the blur in the supine network of nerves and synapses. Was the backyard effect playing tricks on him? Or did I waver in my resolve to keep the errant ball fair? Is there an app for a Pied Piper of redactions hailing in a prairie field of ripening choke cherries? Anyway, that's just part of the poem, but you, get the, uh, you can see how it's almost circular. And one of the things that I am most proud of of this book, Roy has my utmost admiration for being able to do this. He turned over 25 years of production. Roy, Roy published his first book at age 49. So over 25 years of production, he managed to turn those six books and the new book into what I think of as a serial poem. This book can be read as one poem. And I think that it's an astonishing achievement that Roy was able to do this. And it's not just the words. Somebody mentioned retirement earlier and when when Larissa was reading my bio, that business about being a, a photographer, a carver, and all this kind of stuff, that's actually code for retired. <laughs> and, but when Roy retired, he decided to teach himself how to do collages on, what's the program that you use? Photoshop. Photoshop. I don't know if you've noticed this, but as you get older, computers become more difficult. You know, if you have a problem with a computer, get a young person to help you. It's, it's the only way to go. We saw that today with setting this up. Anyway, Roy had worked with photography and used pictures in some of his early works, but what changed in the new book, what gradually changed was the collages themselves became poems. They have to be read as poems. And you're seeing them, these are the ones from Cloudy and Clear. So I'm going to hand it back to you. This poem is playing with um, singular, singularity of lines. And each line is a, is a different line where something linguistic occurs to change its direction. The future is now. The suggestion is that every present moment decisions are made which create the possibility of the future. She falls from the letter and begins casting spells. Let bygones be gone has been our brand. Sorry, the local is much more than our recall policy allows. Returns on the iPad exceed neighborhood skylines. Yes, why not be weary when the yoke's on us? Nonchalant slips on natura naturan. The selfie sublime is a widget for all intents and purposes. So cry me a liver of locale digestive incentive. 
The automated balance tries much harder when cajoled. Now I really do feel our definitions drop three floors. You did say free flotsam is fashionable, but was it yesterday? Lots of turmoil, so they say, set the stage for craft. Wiley figures strain for imagined changes in penmanship. Bound by regulator, the tongue ties to postal timelines. The mechanism exudes an eye cloud of encumbered reverbs. Insularity breeds bods of discontent towards its own nature. It tries to conjure fake borders but runs out of templates. A thin discourse on life support keeps us afloat for the duration. It has been years since I lost my place in the, in the dividing line. You must have some, been summoned to open the chute. The watery edge of an eyelash rolls in on a tear. The seance springs a bevy of spirits on feathery reposts. Hungry for data, we step into the same river twice as deep. We awake stupefied and retooled with new passwords. Playing around with a lot of computer languages. One of the things that um, you'll notice reading Roy, and I think this for, for Roy goes back to the other Roy, Roy Kioka. Part of what Kioka did was he would invent words. If he didn't have the right word, he would make up a word. And that, that's one of the things we, we had to figure out in working on his on Pacific Windows was, okay, well, how do you spell it? And he would change the word through different iterations. But anyway, I think that, that was kind of punning, but Roy skipped over, and I was hoping he would read it. And this is from Cloudy and Clear. It's third or fourth poem in. Riffs on Robert Croach's lemon poem. When R.K. talks about a lemon, he doesn't talk about the lemon. The lemon does the talking, and he listens, and in tent lies. <laughs> so one of the things, working with Roy on this book for two years, I had a sudden burst of creativity. I used to um, <laughs> pride myself on writing one poem every decade. Then I retired, and all of a sudden, and I worked with Roy on this, and all of a sudden I was writing poetry like every day. And I was like, what's going on here? Can I trust this? But a lot of it was in response to Roy's work. So uh, I ended up with about 200 poems going back and forth with Roy. So I'm just going to read one of them here. And it Couldn't turn the faucet off. Couldn't turn the faucet off, yeah. Many late nights. Lemonade. This fucking poem is a lemon. <laughs> I can't get it started. It worked yesterday. Today, it won't even turn over. Click, click, click. The battery is okay. Click, click, click. Must be the starter. Get out the persuader. Crawl under on your back and hammer on the starter motor. That almost always works once. Back to you, Roy. Okay. This poem, this poem might go well with it. I don't know. It's called Symptomatic. I, I suggest you don't try to understand every line of this poem. Just let it wash over you. Symptomatic. The flamboyance of the social jest embodied stellar incompetence in the last instance of failed irony. The riling up of dilettante fashion, a last-ditch ploy to resist change, if only in flailing notes of nostalgia. You can already intuit a domino effect used in previous iterations to wear out the welcome mat of audience ratings. They lowered sights for the bitter view. You'd think they would have taken the hints from the already retreating crows. 
yet fairly heralded the advent of a new round of legible practices and once but not forgotten coaxing tendrils. We need to fight for the last remnants of telepathic conveyances held in tandem with correspondences and alert networks and formed by neural paths that long ago located in telechy in the throes of arrival departures foretold in forensic annals. The last lines are kind of serious, trying to retrieve that earlier sense of being attuned and in touch with the environment, things around you, with neural pathways. A lot of this has been kind of uh, suctioned out of us. Yeah, well, again, I'll, I'll respond. How's that? This is called supply chain management. And I think it responds to that poem to a certain extent. I live on the second floor of this pyramid scheme. I hear something and see things in real time. A woman with hair so black it's blue with child. A man wearing a trucker's hat backwards looking forward to lunch break. Half an hour later in Newfoundland, I thought I heard her say, but no, reading lips is not my forte. And the traffic laughs in her face and briskly rubs her stomach as if expecting a reward for being attentive. If not, why? If not, why not, he signs to her, and they hug all three. Like we used to, a sandwich, an apple, and a granola bar. A gallon jug of water frozen for the next morning, melting like an iceberg in the shade. A long, cool drink of ice water at noon. Steel-toed boots, loosened for a minute or five, just as I drink exactly half of what's in my jug. Every day. Climbing is one way to get to the top. What is in my sandwich better be lunch meat extruded into a facsimile of a slice of life. 7% of American adults believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows, whose farts are responsible for global warming. But you and I know it comes from the corner store. (laughs) (laughs) This poem is dealing with uh, one of the common themes in this book, which is the idea of uh, our own complicity with with the way things are going on around us. No one wants to take, be accountable for anything. And uh, taking ownership of your actions is really important, ethically. But I wrote, wrote this poem in which uh, the I and the you play against each other in ethical terms. The oblique truth, envied by any other, and envied by any other name, tossed in assortment. We dig deeper than our competitors. Pliancy forever is our motto. Waist deep in whatever. Any time now, raise your hand. Finagle it. Two, we lie down at peace, our lobes on loan. Credit rules the nest, seeped into channels. Don't mess with it. Three, the voice says, fault is not ours. Fault done them in. Fault never lies. Fault has its confidants. Fault revels not revealed. I am not aware of the disposition the dispossession was kept in storage. All we received held as our own. It was a zone of least resistance. Now that we know, we know, we know. Let's hit the road again for the late night show. Five. The falcon eye turns as it surveys. And why not? Who made thee, little man? We consume, ergo we fudge. The sooth equals the wallow equals the gambit of the whole enchilada. Imagine a nest of circuitous roots. Imagine destination as a slew of words. Imagine definition as a booby trap. We came along for the ride. We learn at intervals to abide. 
All the alabaster in the distance, pipelines pump mirza, all refrain, I mean refine your tongue. That wretched corset of a sentence, the plumb line doesn't lie down. 8. Passes give us options, options give us optics, optics give us. I'll read one of the more accessible poems in this book. One that we debated whether it should stay in or not, I thought. Oh, why not? It's from Marina-side dog. <laughs> yeah, that's how we made all the decisions. Just flip, flip a coin. <laughs> Marina-side dogs. I'm sure my readers would hope that I'd written a lot more of these you know, dog poems. They would enjoy the book a lot more. It would have been a bestseller, too. I never thought of it. You know. Dog poems, that's the way to go. <laughs> Marina-side dogs. I have found that Marina-side dogs of all creatures know the virtues according to the maintenance of pace and mood. Their owners trained to bask in the salve of their pedigree, abiding in hoof temperance, unmatched in civic lore. Two. These high-rising, nowhere to go but up, they say, house the happiest of dogs. Each unit arrayed with owners who think nothing of pampering them with latest sportswear, paw cozies, extendable leashes, on saunters on the seawall before an evening nap. 3. They gather around the hot dog stand, leashes in one hand, coffee in the other, a potpourri of dogs soaking up sunshine. Make it the works, was the text probe, forwarded to us as they mosey on. It's an awesome dog poem, right? <laughs> and I have a response to your dog poem. What, what would happen was we'd be working on these and Roy would come over to my apartment and we would spend a couple of hours and we literally would go through these space by space, letter by letter. And earlier poems, it's a chance to correct and a chance to update. But these newer poems, you want to get them right. So you have to really, and well, you, you know this from your, your experience. You want to get it right the first time, but you know that you, it's, it's never going to be perfect. I, I would spend this time with Roy and, and then spend time thinking about this and then Usually, very late at night, you know, one thirty, two o'clock in the morning, something, something would tweak. Clambake, on the beach, reduce carbon footprint by a mile, maybe, and a bit. These clams are mussels. That wine is counterfeit. The beach is a mirage. Those tilapia are salty. A dog is feral. Cats are virtually cute, as in wouldn't want to be one at a time. Good call, tomato juice is otherworldly. LDL cholesterol is it. Wake up, it's morning in America. I am troubled by your dreams. So I'm a very different writer than Roy is. And I, I attribute that to the fact that Roy, I don't know if you know this, but Roy was in a rock and roll band. Roy Meeky and the Downbeats. Oh, God. Winnipeg. And it, his competition was Neil Young and the Squires. Right? No, seriously, I'm, I'm being told this is not a joke. I mean, it could be a joke, but it's not. But I'm a... I came of age... Roy came of age in that rock and roll when there was... When Pat Boone would sing Little Richard songs, when Elvis would sing... Songs by blue, black blues guys. And, but I turned 13 on the 
day that the Beatles played on Ed Sullivan for the first time, February 9th, 1964. So that marks my, my teenagehood. So musically, our tastes and what we grew up with, our influences are slightly different in that I did not have that influence of early rock and roll that, that you did. But you have to remember, by the time the Beatles came on, Roy would have been 22 at that time. He'd already gone through, burned down rock and roll, the whole of rock and roll in uh, Manitoba, and yeah. moved on to folk music. <laughs> and uh, Toronto. And My early careers. What, do you mean folk singer too? Yeah, I didn't know that part. <laughs> oh, hey. Yeah, like, so was, sang, sang at protests. Oh. and. I lived at the Peace Center. You did? When I was a grad student at UAP. Studying. What, what studying did Roy study? Old, studying old English. Old English. And you were studying old English. Medieval literature. That was before William Carlos Williams, right? Yeah. So here's a protest poem for you, Roy. But I was reading William. You were reading Williams by that time? Yeah. Idols. Can you sit idly by waiting for your iPhone to ring in the new year? Contingent coalitions with neoliberals never work. You're always going to be recuperated. The party needs you to be the life of both day and night. The pay is never enough. There is no time off. This lesson is painful. The wounds never heal. A squeeze of lemon juice and sparkling water helps for a moment. I'll read another poem then. Yeah. Great song. This poem is called Carnatic. They say that you can't forward your memory to a previous landing site. I beg to differ on this. But there's so much you can do before it seems the cards are stacked against you. You wonder whether some cosmic force has interfered with your everyday to call out your name. But you see rarefied clouds float by with knees only reserved for the hardy, and you instantly know the truth. You find this arrogance on the curve of the road, and at first you feel sorry for its presumptive ways and means. But kick it in the ditch, one side of you says to the other, and before you can say Shazam, it has jumped across the chasm. You need to dial it down a couple of notches until its windpipe is too narrow for the passage of sludge and solicitude, they say. But bound by mortal coil, your swell heart beats in tune to the already dissonant fume that rains down on this earth. It's not as negative as it seems. Trending. Old pathways bend on command in minted zones, as style covers over the slippage of banter. Outtakes in the flailing crowd cover on high tide, as windows gather in morsels of pedestrians whose feet elongate in, sunk, in sync with it all. These, these towers that, that are in Yaletown are quite amazing when you live in them, they're, they're reflecting the light on everything. Every, 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 every bit of cloud formation is reflected in all the windows. And you're constantly seeing reflections of reflections of reflections. And it gets to the point where you, you as, a, as a subject, kind of give into the spaces because you wander in there. You become less of a subject and more of a complicit member of this community because they seep into your subconscious. Old pathways bend on command in minted zones. Everything gives way. Buildings give way. Streets give way. Bridges give way when zones are newly minted. A style covers over the slippage of banter. We see a lot of banter on drag through the radio. 
and, the, and developing banter. As windows gather in marshals of pedestrians, whose feet elongate in sync with it all. But it's kind of a pleasure in that, being a part of that new development. Everybody loves new development, right? What about um, Victoria Park? Is that still a neighborhood? Yeah, that's where um, Roy has a section called This Side, and that, that's where Roy Kyoka lived in Calgary. And there's a, yeah, and there's, and there's a photographic essay and poems in not sequence of poems. What I try to do is I inhabit Roy Kyoka's childhood, neighborhood, and I imagine my own, my own childhood through the lens of that neighborhood. He was born in a neighborhood Very where the streets, lanes, and foot-worn paths of the park returned on themselves. The patron saint of lease, the tang tanginess of elsewhere, roots the dog days of slumber. This poem called Enter Here was written over a period of many, many years. It just drove me crazy. I couldn't write this poem. I, the words were there, but it just didn't come to me. And... Uh, Finally, with this with this uh, book coming out, I thought this these poems are getting in this book. <laughs> I'd have to die for it. I'm going to write these poems for it. And I got mad at myself, and and took to the page at it, and and the poems finally wrote themselves. So they come in um, three parts. Each poem five five sections, three parts. There's an opening part that's kind of like a lyric overview, and then. A shorter piece that internalizes uh, the experience of internment. And then, a, and then a little refrain that plays with the words weave, wave, and waver. And these photos in this sequence have children looking at the camera. I, I scoured the archives looking for photos of, uh, of groups of people who are, who are being uprooted. Who are, who are in a family or individual groups where the, where the child was looking at the camera and not at the scene around them. They're looking at the cameraman. They're conscious of being photographed. And so for me, that was a tunnel into the future. This is what I used for my book on redress. Yeah, I noticed this. This one here is clearly, clearly interesting because there's two boys, one looking into the future and one looking into the past. I imagine one looking into the past and one looking into the future. And these are iconic photos. They're, they've been reproduced many times for internment, to cover internment. Okay, fine. The last time he shook hands with that memory, I was in a bind, the kind made popular in the passing assumption of the time. One could say insolvent and not be totally wrong. Not that he minded the shutter speed did not allow for the crispness of edge he linked with vivid recall. The morning that cloudy day hung in the branches of the ancestral oak tree, I sought the blur in the supine network of nerves and synapses. Was the backyard effect playing tricks on him? Or did I waver in my resolve to keep the Aaron Paul afloat? Is there an app for a Pied Piper of redactions, hailing in a prairie field of ripening chokecherries? The Instaglobe is watched face turned incandescent, as if time was no longer beyond the deciphering, but more forgiving, more willing to let the letters pass through the windpipes and the coral deluge. By all reports, and reports was all I had, the forensic marker played upon so well. Almost before the cheek 
press the hand and falls, runs down as freshet. Of the dust speckles, ruffles rest and the rest in silence, not byproduct. Of faint rumbles, other respite from the news. Caught, how you call it, matters, the device relents. Maybe the coastal bruise by any other name closes in on. We wave and we waver and woe we wave. And this poem has to do with that, not remembering the moment which the trauma of internment passed for me. Because one day I was just sitting there and it was gone. And my anger was still there. I can retrieve the anger and everything like that. But everything that happened to us, all the pain of it, just dissipated. I realized I was kind of free from that. And it took me half a lifetime to do, it, to do that. Do you still feel angry? No. No, I feel grateful. You feel grateful? Yeah. How come? How? Why? Well, the internment gave me my world. It gave me everything that I can, all my consciousness. It prompted me to think about everything from the ground up. Yeah. I've never stopped thinking about human justice. You had to endure such brutality in order to have this world. And your point is? My point is there's a chicken and an egg, I guess. Yeah. Or there's an egg. People who go through hardship, they come through it. They don't come through it to analysis. It's, it's so sad and tragic. But when they come through, they come through much stronger, mm. different people. Mm. And one, th one thing I think that really comes clear in this book, how that pain is tempered by family. Yeah. That, that's another, you know, that, that picture, you can see it there, and you can see... And, you know, if you do the math, Roy was essentially conceived in freedom, but born in internment. That's funny. It, it, it's a weird kind of um, punishment because the family was kept together. Yes. You know, it's not, not your typical where the, the, the one person is isolated from the community or something. Mm -hmm. and, and it, in a way, grows a whole new community around them, is what I what I see yeah. coming out of that. And there's interesting, like, a lot of people they see that thing and they say, where's your father? Where what's, is he? He, what's the he's answer? He's taking a photo. He's, taking <laughs> <laughs> he, he's there. <laughs> it's so funny that I imagine him to be absent. Yeah. And he's present. Of course. Also, oh, you and your father are That's a brownie camera. You're the absent presences, you and your yeah. dad, in that yeah. photograph. Do you think that your relationships with your family are stronger because you were because of the internment? I think so. You think so? We're pretty close. Yeah. But we don't confide in each other every day. Roy, when was the when was the last time you went to St. Gap? Was it to take the grant pick your pieces and answers or uh, yeah, that's about it. I went there with Bob Croach once. We spent a day there. I think that I lived in a I lived in a life where things are kind of uh, laid out in advance, even though everything looks chancy. My, my first principal, school principal, yeah. who who harangued me daily for not behaving myself, was called Mrs. Lang. Mrs. Lang. 
Mrs. Lang. <laughs> Achievement to me, my language. My language, uh, warden. She also, she also said, speak prim and proper. Speak, yeah. speak grammatically. But also, uh, at that time, you your language at home, you with your grandmother was Japanese mm -hmm. until, until she passed, and then you started losing that language. Yeah. So when you went to school, you were English was your second language. Yeah, at first, but you pick up the language pretty fast. So Mrs. Lang. This is my delivered. Language. It's actually quite fun, but it's very That's her name. Yeah, I often thought of it. There's a poem there. <laughs> Mine was called a, a language poem. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's about it. Do you, do you have the energy for a few questions? Sure. Yeah, yeah actually, I have a question. Um, everything's not too religiously taught. But um, I'm doing like Japanese Canadian terms during the Second World War as my dissertation. So I'm just thinking of um, talking about it from children's perspective. I have uh, some texts like Joyka Baba's Awesome and then Francis and Ignis uh, Raphim. And I'm wondering if you know more texts to like written from children's perspective of that internment. Uh, Michael Fukushima. Oh, Michael Fukushima. Oh, what was the name of that? It's about his relationship with his father. Yeah, I can't remember the title. But if you want, I, I'll jog my memory and if you give me a way of contacting you, I, I'll give you the link. Right. Different stages of writing, different genres, different types. What would you pass on? What would you say to them? Write, write as, many, as widely as possible. Don't don't get hung up on one genre. Keep your mind open all the time to your own linguistic uh, habits. Don't be don't be trapped into repeating yourself. Some people say hone your style. I say that could be dangerous. Find your voice. Maybe you only have one. Better to have more than one. Would you like to read one last question? Hey, twist, twist my arm. Twist it. I'll, I'll read one and then maybe you can end it with a... Think of something to end it with while I'm reading this. What is the type? Prospectus. Hop on, hop off. Tic-tac-toe is not a tactic but it works, block after block unto Nootka. Son of a gun, what a career I've had. Every time I write a poem, I send money home. Mom, Dad, I owe you big time for talking me down. Be a poet, you sit if you must, but do something else to make a living. I did this, and I did that. I hunt for meaning in the morning, fish for compliments in the afternoon, cattle calls in the evening. I sleep with one eye open, Oh yeah, I also criticize dinner after. Uh, since my read that, please allow me to the lemon poem. I'll read that. Great. When R.K. talks about the lemon, he doesn't talk about the lemon. The lemon does the talking and he listens. 
and intent lies. Did he really call to Smaro? Was she really in the kitchen? How did she really hear him? What signs did she really use? How can we really fathom his alleged circumnambulations? My old professor used to say T.S. Eliot always looked as if he had bit, just bitten into a lemon. In his lemon poem, R.K. set aside tradition and the individual talent and caressed the lemon instead. One time I met R.K. at the Frankfurt airport, <coughs> where he met me in the crowd rushing through the exit doors. Let's talk lemon, I thought, he said, as we boarded the train to the city. Sure enough, the landscape turned lemony before our very eyes, and we knew yet again that we were lost in thought, passing through unknown landscapes and schoolgirls giggling at our forlorn gestures. No lemonade. I should mention that Thoth was the Egyptian god of printing, of, of language, of writing. And that's a true story. We got lost. We, we always got lo get lost when we drive. Coach and I live in a car, we get lost. <laughs> I got lost going home one night from Vancouver. I got lost one time taking a test. I feel I lost, we ended up in Pukutnam somewhere. <laughs> God awful thing. <laughs> yeah, but getting lost with Robert Croach would be a pretty good experience. As soon as we get lost, I said, there we go, Bob. <laughs> one time we got lost and we shot a game of pool in a little town we didn't know. And then we figured out from the looking at the bartender, talking to the bartender, where we were. <laughs> <laughs> this is a non-toma. The lemon is not a lemon. In our case, poem, the lemon is not a lemon, is not a lemon, isn't a lemon. I was about to munch on a lemon. I read our case, poem. I put the lemon back in the basket beside the orange, the apple, and the pear. Why does a lemon love salmon? Is it kinship that matters? A matter of fruition? Okay, let the salmon speak. That's it. Thank you all very much. Yeah, thank you very much. enjoyed this conversation with Roy Meeky and Mike Barnholden. I'm Rebecca Jelaine and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The reading you just heard was recorded during the Tea House event Producing Flow in October 2019. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stuckel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Mahmoud Ababne, Rebecca Jelaine, Paul Meunier, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www.tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.